Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Dr. Kyle Gillette. This guy is brilliant. I swear to God, he has a photographic memory. He practices preventative medicine, sports medicine, focuses heavily on hormone optimization, infertility, and integrative medicine. Dr. Gillette is one of a kind. In this episode, we talk all about weight loss, supplements to optimize testosterone levels. We talk about thyroid health. We talk about estrogen, progesterone. We dive deep into mechanisms. If you are a patient or a provider, this episode is definitely for you. I highly recommend Dr. Kyle Gillette. He is a generous and brilliant physician. I hope you enjoy this episode. I would like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is One Farm. And listen, in this episode, I talk with Dr. Kyle about hormones, sleep, testosterone, optimal functioning, and all of that may or may not begin in the bedroom. And actually, it's not what you think it is, so shame on you. I'm actually talking about sleep. I would love to tell you about One Farm's new sleep gummy. And uh, there's a lot of ways to get to sleep, to stay asleep, but oftentimes we are in the bed looking at the ceiling. So what can you do? And natural supplementation can be wonderful. Sleep gummy can help. I've used One Farm for quite some time. Previously, I've used their dropper, their cinnamon dropper, to help me get to sleep. What makes these sleep gummies so unique is they have a whole handful of active ingredients, which include chamomile, tart cherry, lemon balm, California poppy, hops, skullcap. Head over to onefarm.com, put in the code LION20 for $20 off. Go to onefarm.com, put in that code LION20 for $20 off, and uh, enjoy a good night's sleep. Thank you to one of the sponsors of the show, and that's Element. Okay, let me just tell you, Element, which is spelled L-M-N-T, is now making for the holidays and hopefully longer chocolate caramel and chocolate salt. This stuff is killer. Okay, how do you use it? Here's what I do. I heat up a cup of water. I put it in. I drink these electrolytes hot. This is an amazing product. It tastes incredible. These electrolytes have 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. But what I can't get over is how good it actually tastes. If you struggle with maintaining hydration, if you get headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, these could be signs of electrolyte deficiencies. What are you going to do? You are going to throw down some element, if of course that is in your plan. Head over to drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion. That's drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion. And for a limited time only, they offer a no questions asked refund. You'll also get eight single serving packs free with any order. That's right. So any order, this stuff is amazing. You will love it. Dr. Gillette, Kyle Gillette, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really, really excited to have you on. Um, you do a lot of things really well. 
and you are uh, trained in obesity medicine, family medicine. You even deliver babies to this day, which is uh, pretty impressive. And you are really good at reading the literature, being involved in it, and seeing patients and seeing what works and what doesn't. And you have a lot of clinical experience. And your dad was a doctor as well. So this is um, kind of in your blood, as I'd like to, to think it is. Um, so welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. I there's so many. We got so many questions from the listeners, and um, one there's there's two or three really big silos that I want to touch on. Number one is hormone replacement. Uh, men and women, they all have questions on hormone replacement, and you do a lot of that in your own clinic, and, and your team does a lot of that. And then the other thing is um, obesity, obesity meds, and what works, what doesn't, medications versus supplements. And then finally, I would love to chat about peptides. So we're, we're gonna just dive right in. Hormones, male hormones. Tell me what you look for, who needs it, who doesn't, best ways to treat it, pellet therapy, which we have to talk about, all of it. For sure. Um, I, I feel like uh, we are kindred spirits, so it's great that two clinicians are giving this um, information, the tools, not necessarily advice, of course, but tools to allow people to make better decisions about their health. Um, starting with uh, hormones, hormone therapy, should I do HRT, should I not do HRT? All of this is an individualized decision. So uh, as both of us know, and as many people know as well, um, most of medicine is going towards the place of an algorithm. It's like in the movie Idiocracy when you go up and you just push, <laughs> you push a button on the machine mm. and then it just spits out right. uh, what's wrong with you. However, um, in order to get an optimal care, everyone has been designed differently and um, you have to uh, pull up the scale. Everybody's scale is different and weigh the risks and the benefits. And in order to assess those risks and benefits, you need good objective data. So the first thing to start with is good baseline labs. People like to say, well, when do you start? Um, do you start at 40? Do you start at 30? Um, uh, the earlier, the better. The way I look at it is um, we are very complex pieces of machinery and ele electrical signals. And just like every car that comes off the assembly line gets tested by the computer, and if there's a problem, which often there is, even with assembly line manufacturing, that's addressed before that car is sent out to the public. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we should be doing labs on babies, but I think at very least um, at 18 or early 20s, you should get your first baseline labs. I think that that's a, a really wise thing to do. Um, and when you say baseline labs, you're not just talking about a CBC or CMP. You're talking about probably getting baseline hormonal panel, baseline thyroid, uh, perhaps even cholesterol uh, early on to see, you know, um, perhaps any kind of familial risks or things of that nature. When it comes to testosterone therapy and lab work, what do you look at for um, testosterone? Are there, you know, are you looking at free testosterone? total testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, uh, estrogen for men in particular? For men and also for women as well, but um, trying to concentrate on men at the start, um, you can talk about androgens of all types. So testosterone is the main androgen 
Um, just to define some terms, SHBG is sex hormone binding globulin, which is the main protein which binds all androgens and actually estrogens as well. And SHBG and other things determine, but mostly SHBG, determine what your free testosterone is. The benefits of having a high free testosterone compared to total testosterone is it's going to bind to the androgen receptor more often. The androgen receptor is throughout the whole body, it's in the hair, it's in the prostate, it's in the muscle tissue. However, when there is a low SHBG or high free testosterone, that testosterone is also metabolized faster. Testosterone and estrogen are metabolized differently. So estrogen is more likely to undergo a process um, called glucuronidation that we learned about in medical school, whereas testosterone is more likely to be uh, sulfated um, or um, have a ubiquitin group attached in order to metabolize it. So SHBG kind of protects testosterone, but also prevents its mechanism of, mechanisms of action. So you want to balance between total and free testosterone both, and you want to check both of them. Now to expand on this a bit, <laughs> this is true of almost every hormone, especially sterol-based hormones. So cortisol, you have a total and a free cortisol. IGF-1, you have a total and a free IGF-1. Thyroid hormone, of course, you have a total and a free T3 and T4, active and inactive thyroid hormone. So um, I think it's important to think about the context of free and total hormones across the board, mm. not just androgens and not just estrogens. So that would make it really important if someone was considering TRT that they are going to a provider that's really looking at the whole picture as opposed to, say, just free testosterone and total testosterone, but really looking at, at the big picture. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you're seeing this a lot. I'm seeing a lot of pellet use. I'm curious as to when you look at someone's free testosterone and you're making the decision, okay, so this person is sleeping well, they're eating right, but their free testosterone is still suboptimal. Right. And again, that could be whatever that number is for that individual. How would you initiate therapy in, in terms of do you have a preference, whether it's an injectable, sub-Q, IM, cream? For most individuals, my preference is injectable. It tends to have a more stable bioavailability and absorption, especially compared to creams. Now that isn't always the case, but it is certainly possible to start on an injectable and then transition to other forms. You can transition back and forth at any time and you can likely come off and regain your um, your previous level. That's it might really just important. take a few months. Yeah, that's so. actually really important to mention. People are really afraid that once they start testosterone that they'll have to be on it for the rest of their life. Have you found that to be true? It is definitely not true. In 99 plus percent of cases, you come off and I'm sure we've both seen it. <laughs> yeah. And it might be a few months. Um, what to do is to go to your doctor like anything else. Mm -hmm. And um, if you need some supplements or even medications to support regaining your natural production, then um, you have those administered. And what not to do is to just stop going to your doctor and come <laughs> off cold turkey because it could be months and months and months yeah. and you could be very hypocondrial. So basically don't be the world's worst patient and take it upon yourself. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, you mentioned supplements. Um, for a medication, would you say maybe Clomid or HCG would really help with the testosterone production? Um, have you found that to be sufficient to help? Um, they can definitely help, and they're certainly useful in some situations. 
HCG is human chorionic gonadotropin, and it mimics a couple different actions. If you look at the molecule itself, it's actually very similar to TSH, which is a little confusing because we think of it as more of an LH mimetic because right. it does bind the LH receptor. And it gets, um, it has a relatively strong mechanism of action at a lower level, especially on LH, and then it has diminishing returns as you increase. For example, if you're dosing at 700 IUs a day and then, um, you know, 2,000 IUs a day, you're not going to get three times right. the and pharmacodynamic effect. That's a, lot. That's a pretty robust dose yeah. if it's daily. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially if it's an adjunct to TRT. Now, um, some of the um, best applicability of HCG is, of course, fertility, both fertility while on TRT and after you come off. Um, not everybody that's on TRT has to take HCG no matter what. Good point. Good point. Um, however, there's a few different strategies to maintain um, normal testicular size, so avoiding what we call testicular atrophy. Um, especially for individuals who desire fertility, a good rule of thumb is within about a year or so, you should be thinking about being on HCG, a regimen of some sort. And before you come off, many people are able to just transition from TRT with some adjunct HCG to HCG monotherapy and not even require a CIRM. The one important thing to remember in that case is HCG is suppressive at the pituitary especially for LH and in some cases FSH. So LH usually mostly stimulates testosterone production. It also stimulates paracontractors that go between the seminiferous tubules and the Leydig cells. But FSH mostly stimulates um, uh, the Sertoli cells and spermatogenesis. So that's, an, yeah. again, it goes yeah, back yeah. to labs. It's important to get labs totally. to see if that's happening because then you might need something in addition to it. And the way that they would check is you'd actually look at LH, FSH, uh, see if it's high or if it's low, suppressed. Um, when uh, someone is on testosterone therapy, um, how often should they, well, number one, what could they expect? So mm -hmm. could you say, okay, you're gonna start 200 milligrams of testosterone and your testosterone is gonna go up uh, by this number? Is that, can, can someone think like that or it's totally variable depending on that individual? The two analytical points to consider here is, um, one, the metabolism of the testosterone. Obviously they can, um, different people will metabolize it at different rates, even at the same SHBG and then the SHBG. So it seems that a lot of clinicians solely dose testosterone based upon the administration frequency and the SHBG, which again is sex hormone binding globulin that binds testosterone. So you also have to take into account the um, individuality of testosterone metabolism, even with the same SHBG. Mm. So over time, um, you can have a pretty good idea of how that happens, but um, it is hard to get exactly right, which is, why most people pick something right in the middle of normal. Um, even if you're aiming for an optimal level, um, which by the way, I usually consider around a total of 550 mm -hmm. to a total of around 1000. Yeah, I would say that that's to absolutely reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, even if you want to be near the, the top of the optimal range. <laughs> Which, by range. the way, every single guy does, yes. right? That's all, when they uh, come to labs, that's all they wanna know, what's, what's my testosterone? Mm -hmm. It is still very reasonable to dose near kind of the middle of the optimal range. It's um, like almost any other medication that's prescribed. Um, 
even if you know that it's fairly likely that you might need to tweak the dose a little bit,、mm. you try to pick right in the middle, largely just because you're much less likely to have side effects. And if you're not able to tolerate the medicin medication,、right. then it's more likely that they want to come off completely. So if there's horrible sleep and they feel like they're going through puberty a second time with acne and、um, hair shedding and prostate issues, then they're much less likely to want to continue that long term. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you mentioned dosing it based on SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin. Have you found a way to lower it? Just lowering the SHBG to perhaps make the testosterone more available. Mm -hmm. In most cases, lowering SHBG is relatively easy. So, adding in healthy carbohydrates into the diet is one way.、Um, if that individual eats carbohydrates,、um, presumably <laughs> most people would be able to.、Yep. Um, slightly more meals per day.、Um, nutrient timing can also help. So,、um, your、uh, the mechanism of action of that is insulin binding to the insulin receptor. Insulin only has a half life of、um, several several minutes, perhaps thirty minutes. So depending on when you're having that insulin spike, it binds to the insulin receptor in the liver, and that's going to decrease production of SHBG. SHBG has a half-life of around a week, so it's really around for quite some time. Yeah. So that's relatively easy to do. If someone is overtraining, or if they've like just run a marathon and then they're going to stop doing that training, then their SHBG will naturally come down because after、um, doing all that cardio and then. Doing less extreme endurance cardiovascular exercise, their SHBG will come down as well.、Mm. So there's several ways to help decrease it. Boron can help in some cases. Usually, when boron helps long term, it's an individual that has getting suboptimal boron micronutrient in the first place. Um, yeah, that's important to mention because there's a lot of hype about, oh, you know, everyone should take boron. Boron is going to lower SHBG, but it, it seems.、Uh, It seems pretty variable. And then we should also mention oxandrolone. Yeah,、um, let's talk about it. People always ask me about、um, all the different like DHT derivatives. So there's many of them. Any DHT derivative is going to bring down SHBG by binding the androgen receptor in the liver. So things that strongly bind the androgen receptor in the liver is going to affect both SHBG and platelets, bringing it down. Things that strongly bind the estradiol alpha receptor in the liver. There's a lot of different receptors for estrogens, but only one for androgens. That's interesting, right? It's,、yeah. it's, it's curious as to why that is. Yeah. So the main thing I really look at with SHBG is if platelets are also high.、Um, if you look at studies on what I call、um, synthetic HRT, also known as oral contraceptive pills,、mm. um, the risk of venous thromboembolism is correlated with both SHBG and platelets, not SHBG itself. But when platelets are also concurrently high, beca mostly because of、um, the overproduction of platelets, which again happens in the liver, similar to SHBG. So, all that being said,、um, some individuals could benefit from oxandrolone, but I, it's a it's a synthetic DHT derivative, and I would really put it more in the category of the synthetic estrogens and the synthetic progestogens that are in oral contraceptive、mm. pills. So, people would benefit from. Oxandrolone over testosterone, depending on their SHBG, or is there another in indicator that you would think about for that? Often, another indicator is if they have a low free testosterone and a high SHBG. Why not just increase the dose of testosterone or change the mechanism of administration? For example, changing from topical to injectable. 
I'm generally not a fan of using a shorter acting ester like testosterone propionate. Leuven only has three carbons, has a half-life of only two days or so. I'd rather use an anthate or cipionate, which has seven or eight carbon chains and have a, uh, a longer duration of action. They don't affect SHBG as much, but when you're um, having a huge spike in free T and you don't have that nice, even steady state level, mm. then you're going to have a higher erythropoietin spike and more uh, secondary erythrocytosis to that. So you're going to have more red blood cells. Right. And then your doctor is going to tell you to donate blood yeah. and you're going to become iron deficient and still have too many red <laughs> right, blood cells. Right, right. And um, uh, people would be able to see that with an elevated hemoglobin hematocrit. Um, you know, and the question is, how high, do people ask you how high is too high to go with the hemoglobin hematocrit? Often so. <laughs> okay. Yep. And what do you tell them? There's a dangerous level and there's an optimal level. Totally. Dangerous levels are well in excess usually of a hematocrit of 55%. I agree. I totally agree with you. So just like anything else, um, as it as the hematocrit increases way over 55%, there's an exponential increase. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a cutoff where it's dangerous or safe. Um, so yeah, a couple of clinical pearls from that, I suppose. Yeah especially for the clinicians and scientists that are listening, is always check a ferritin when you're concerned for polycythemia or erythrocytosis or just um, overactive erythropoietin. Um, when you're donating blood often, that is also causing spikes of erythropoietin right. because your homeostatic mechanism can realize right. that. And then along with the SHBG part, it's not just SHBG and free androgens of all types that you're looking at. It's also the sensitivity of your androgen receptor. And a lot more research is going to be done on this in the future. But there's a spectrum all the way. It's actually very similar to Huntington's disease or Fragile X syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's a CAG repeat polymorphism. Everybody has this on their androgen receptor. It's on the X chromosome. So women have two androgen receptor genes. Men have one, which they get from their mother. And if you are an individual that has a lot of CAG repeats, you are more insensitive to androgens and you very well might need a higher dose or a higher free testosterone in order to feel the same benefit because you're not going to get as much gene transcription at the same level. That's important to note. And are you testing for that routinely or is that a, a thing eventually will you think is going to move into standard of care? I'm testing for it when I suspect a very high or very low CAG repeat number. Below, I believe, 12 CAG repeats, the chance of MR is very high. So the chance of IQ below 70. Mm. Um, above a certain number of CAG repeats, certainly above 30, then you start to be concerned for like um, basically diseases mimicking hypogonadism without overt hypogonadism. Now, if you have a completely dysfunctional protein, there's a pathology known as AIS or androgen insensitive, insensitivity syndrome, where you have an XY genotype, but you are phenotypically a female. Hmm. What if a guy, well, let me ask you this. Do you feel that testosterone replacement therapy is safe? When monitored correctly, <laughs> it is very safe. There's yeah. a study that I really like that looks at just hypogonadal men. And these hypogonadal men are at risk of the normal things like diabetes and metabolic syndrome. And it, if you compare the group of hypogonadal men that choose to take TRT versus choosing to remain hypogonadal, you have less diabetes and actually less heart attacks and strokes 
if you do the TRT, probably because of less diabetes. Mm. So um, if you need it, then it is extremely safe and likely decreases both morbidity and mortality. And you're saying if someone needs it, that could also be that they're just not optimized and they feel it. Maybe they have uh, middle weight gain. They're really fatigued. Maybe they're losing the hair on their legs, right? Not able to maintain muscle mass. Um, There's a spectrum of hypogonadism to having a suboptimal testosterone level. Of course, each academic society has their own yeah. um, somewhat arbitrary cutoff. Again, going back to the um, pyramid of evidence-based medicine, where you have meta-analyses and systematic reviews at the top, and then you have randomized controlled trials, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, et cetera. Then you have your um, uh, retrospective and prospective court studies, case control studies. Then you have your expert opinion. <laughs> right. And that's what things like um, the USPTF, guidelines are. That's what uh, the urologists have their own. AACE has their own. The urologist guideline is a total testosterone of 400. But Isn't that surprising? Yeah. And yeah. it's not terrible. A lot of these guidelines are quite good and a lot of them include lifestyle recommendations mm -hmm. as well, which I love. And all of them mention that other like causes of a level should be ruled out. Um, for example, um, exogenous steroid use, right. um, just <laughs> right. for one example. But um, along with that, there should be more emphasis, in my opinion, given to the free testosterone and also given to the density of the androgen receptor in the cytoplasm and the sensitivity. So those are two different concepts. The density is like how much androgen receptor you actually have. It's affected by something called heat shock proteins. Yeah. So if you have more density, but less sensitivity compared to someone with less density and more sensitivity, you might have the same actual level of gene transcription. So for the individual that's suboptimal, but having symptoms, I would suspect one of those two things. Often I start with medications or supplements that I know will increase the density of the androgen receptor, like low dose Tadalafil or like L-carnitine, oral or injectable. Sort of use that as a diagnostic and therapeutic trial. And how fast time. do you expect them to see results from either of those? Yeah. I would expect them to at least feel less symptoms within a month. Okay. So you would give it, you would give both the, the medication and the um, supplement a month? Oftentimes. Okay. And at times try natural optimization. There's all, it yeah, seems yeah, like there's course, always something course. else that you try as well. Prior to someone going on testosterone therapy, do you think that there's ways to increase testosterone naturally? Definitely. Um, again, it comes down to the individual. So in some individuals, it is as, um, I guess, simple as metabolic syndrome or number two on the usual suspects list, <laughs> sleep apnea. Yes. Sometimes yes. it's as simple as that. Yeah. And sometimes it's extremely complicated. Um, do you think, now I know you've talked a lot about when it, it comes to supplements for hormones, you've talked about Tonkat Ali. I'm curious as to where that, that sits in, in your kind of toolbox and you know people always talk about dim when uh, guys are on testosterone sometimes they obviously convert to estrogen it seems like people are using a lot of dim uh, in the effort to decrease excess estrogen i would love for you to comment on the supplementation as it relates to uh, testosterone estrogen for men mm -hmm. tonkat ali or long jack is very interesting um, there has been a ton of studies on it, and it's also been used in Southeast Asia for quite some time as herbal medicine with uh, good anecdotal results for a long time and 
good study results as well. When you look at the mechanism of action, you have to be a little careful. There's a lot of companies that standardize something called uricominones or uripeptide content. So the, the uricominone content is what is presumed to be the main mechanism of action. It's a type of saponin. And it's, What's that? Um, it is a, a plant compound. You have a couple different, like the, the main plant supplement compounds, like polyphenols or saponins. And this happens to be a, I believe it's a glycosaponin technically, but not to get too much yeah, into yeah, like yeah. technicalities. Yeah. The way I think of that, and there might be other um, mechanisms of action as well. For example, ashwagandha has a whole bunch of mechanisms yep. of action, not just on cortisol. I believe Tonkat Ollie is the same thing. So I like to use Tonkat that is um, one from Indonesia and that might be subject to change because that study was done <laughs> okay. in, in a university in Indone Indonesia that does not like Malaysia. But anyway, I try to do that. And then I try to use one that is not highly standardized or over standardized because then we can expect the same results that have been in human studies. Hmm. That's usually around 1.5 to 2% uricominone content and usually about double that other saponin content. So there's some that are over 20% or over 20% uricominones and 20% saponins, but you're not necessarily sure what to expect. I have used, I have had patients on that from time to time and they have also had good results. And when you say good results, how much could they move the needle for their free testosterone? When they have the best results, occasionally they will double it. That's incredible actually. The some of the main mechanisms are in the steroidogenesis cascade itself on two of the same enzymes that insulin and IGF-1 act on. So if you are having, like let's say you're in a caloric deficit or preparing for a natural bodybuilding show, um, you are hypoinsulinemic, you are cutting carbs, you're on a low carb diet, you're doing cardio all the time and your IGF-1 is Sounds extremely miserable. low, your sleep <laughs> yeah. is terrible, your growth hormone is also, think of IGF-1 as just insulin plus growth hormone, rudimentary. Yeah. And you're not gonna have very good insulin and IGF-1 signaling and you're just gonna have less steroidogenesis, adrenally and gonadally. And that is a perfect candidate for Tonka. Ah, that's, that's, a, that's really good advice. Um, I, and I think that it's also a natural way because you know people feel, confused and maybe a bit untrusting of big pharma. And I, I think that there's probably a, a space for both because, you know, if we were to think about men who, you know, andropause really, I guess that's technically not a real term. Uh, I don't think they have an ICD-10 <laughs> right, for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did add one. I don't know if they called it adrenal fatigue, but they have one for adrenopause now. They do. Uh, that's that is really interesting. They do. Well, yeah. going to have to start using that. Um, the code. The uh, interesting thing is that at some point hormones decline, right, for men and women. And then the question becomes, could you, people ask me this a lot, could they maintain these high levels of hormones naturally? Would you say that that is possible? It's certainly possible. I have a decent number of patients that are 80 or even 90. And um, for male and female ranges, their testosterone production is excellent. These individuals usually have a few things in common. Great lifestyle factors, of course. Um, Fair I suppose, <laughs> I suppose great genetics. <laughs> yeah. um, they, there's obviously downsides to that too, like if they develop a breast cancer or prostate cancer. But um, I suppose great genetics. And then also good adrenal production of backup androgens, like DHEA sulfate. Um, some of these individuals have 
uh, are like heterozygotes for something called NCCAH, which is a type of like um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia light. If you just think of it as producing lots of um, androgen like DHEA from the adrenal. Hmm. Thank you so much to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. I have had a great time sitting down with Dr. Kyle Gillette, and we talk all about hormones. This is a perfect time to actually get your hormones checked so that you can understand and see where you're at and perhaps even interface that with what we are talking about. And right now, Inside Tracker is offering $200 off the ultimate plan or 34% off the entire store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lyon for my exclusive discount code. As you can tell, I'm extremely excited that they are doing this for you guys because it is incredibly valuable for you to know what is going on within your own body. And uh, this is the time to do it. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lyon and you can get your own personalized profile and you can track and see what you need to change. Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Today, I'd like to highlight one of my favorite products, and that is actually collagen. I talk a lot about collagen not being a complete protein, which actually it has a protein score of zero, but you're not actually using collagen to build muscle. Where collagen has its benefits, in my opinion, is really skin and skin health and elasticity. Collagen is a protein found in every single joint, tendon, bone, and ligament, and unfortunately, as we age, the collagen turnover becomes slower. And uh, I think that we can all see that in our own skin. First Forms Collagen is low temperature processed hydrolyzed collagen. It is high quality, bioavailable. And in fact, you can put in your coffee right now. Peppermint mocha is my go-to. I have it in the morning. Throw in a little bit of uh, hot coffee and maybe a little cocoa powder and I'm good to go. First Forms Collagen also contains 50 milligrams per serving of derm avail, and this is a phytonutrient-rich complex that increases and helps maintain healthy levels of elastin in the body. That is really important because, as you can imagine, elastin is responsible for elasticity and firmness of the skin. Go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion and get free shipping. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion for free shipping. Would you say that, so a DHA is also something that can uh, be obtained over the counter. Do you think that there's also benefit for keeping and introducing DHEA? For individuals with lower DHEA and for individuals with slightly low testosterone and estrogen, DHEA can be beneficial. If you look at the studies done on DHEA, I looked at one study specifically on DHEA and SHBG, and I believe insulin. And the group selected for this all had relatively normal starting DHEA sulfate. By the way, um, another clinical pearl is DHEA sulfate, um, about half to two thirds, I believe, is sulfated, and that has a much longer half-life. Mm. So if you're just checking DHEA without the sulfate attached, it's kind of like checking just a glucose without an A1C. You're not getting a really long-term marker. So I like to check DHEA sulfate. But they had relatively fine levels of that at start, and then they all had SHBGs under 100. <laughs> So there's plenty of there's right. plenty of females with SHBG well over 100, and I believe if they had selected a different group, then it would have lowered their um, uh, SHBG much more, and they would have had more free testosterone. Um, Dr. Fernand Labrie, I believe he um, 
uh, has recently passed away, but he was well known in Montreal and also internationally for something called intrachronology, which is the intracellular version of endochronology. And he was one of the first ones that showed that all estradiol and testosterone after menopause does indeed come from DHEA, which is adrenally produced. Yes. Um, when you are looking at levels for postmenopausal women for DHEA, is there a number you, or DHEA sulfide, is there a number that you'd like to see? Usually over about 100. Another thing to remember with that is that DHEA, sebaceous glands are uh, both wonderful and terrible at the same <laughs> time. Um, in the sebaceous gland, DHEA is very easily converted with a double whammy conversion to testosterone and the DHT very quickly. So even with a very low serum DHT, um, a lot of DHEA is converted to DHT in the sebaceous gland, so it is notorious for causing acne flares. And do you find that if someone has, you know, is dosing at a lower dose, like maybe five to 10 milligrams, they would be less likely to have side effects versus if someone is dosing at 25 to 50 milligrams of DHEA? Definitely. Another important thing to remember about DHEA and supplements in general, without getting too specific, is that the sourcing of that matters. Even if you get it from a pharmacy, I have seen individuals prescribed uh, micronized DHEA or sustained release DHEA from a compounding pharmacy, a relatively high dose, and had an already low DHEA go down significantly. Why would that And happen? they were certainly taking it, hmm. probably because the DHEA was converted to something else before taking it. Mm. So uh, stability of the products matter um, and where you get it matters as well. In general, almost all compounding pharmacies are good to go, but especially with supplement companies, it's good to use, usually you look for the trifecta of reputable, has um, solid third-party testing and from the United States, uh, UK or Canada. Yeah, that, that's really valuable. Thinking about um, women and women, you know, we get this question a lot, women and menopause. What do you feel is the best way for women to balance their testosterone or balance their hormones? Again, we've got so many questions for you from the listener. What's the best way to balance their, and we're talking about postmenopausal women, considering and thinking about, should I go on hormone replacement? Is it safe? How do I start it? What do you tell them? The first two steps are realizing that testosterone is a female or a woman's hormone. And the average woman has about four times as much testosterone as estrogen. The other thing to realize is that there is a huge variation in not only the sensitivity and density of androgen receptor that we talked about previously, which has a lot of implications in things like PCOS, by the way, but there's also a huge variation in how much testosterone is produced adrenally versus in the theca cells of the ovary, which is um, where women produce a, a lot, a, usually about half, but it could be from anywhere from an eighth to 90%. So mm -hmm. some women only produce like 10%, that would be considered like borderline hypothecosis. Some women produce like 90% of their testosterone from their ovary. That would be considered kind of borderline hyperthecosis, which a lot of female Olympic athletes have because it conveys a significant performance advantage. It's, it's uh, many Olympic athletes have been tested and they have a total testosterone of 200 uh, endogenously produced. And most of that would come from the ovary. So- And you think that's genetic? It's just, it's, they are genetically like that. A lot of it's genetic and a lot of it likely has to do with 
embryological development, so the conditions in the womb, and also how they developed during puberty. So mm. um, basically how much uh, hypertrophy of the theca cell portion of the ovary is there during puberty. Another interesting thing is um, depending on um, part nature, part nurture, a lot of it's epigenetic, so it can be passed down maternally. If a female exercises often during pregnancy, the epigenome, so the methylation and deacetylation and the movement of histone proteins, um, will often move from the less sensitive androgen receptor gene to the more sensitive androgen receptor gene and vice versa. And if you look at cases of hyperandrogenic PCOS or Y-axis PCOS, where there is very high free testosterone or low SHBG, and there's also symptoms from that, you will almost always find, especially in the ovaries and the hair follicles, you will almost always find that the more sensitive androgen receptor gene is the one that's turned on. Oh, so basically, if these women were to ever utilize uh, testosterone, I mean, obviously, they wouldn't necessarily need to at that time. But say, uh, for example, when the ovaries stop functioning, these are the women that would likely lose their hair. Potentially. They, they are certainly much more likely to have essentially androgenic alopecia. Mm. Um, now, to kind of like take that concept a bit further and make it a bit more clinically applicable, other than just interesting, <laughs> is if you happen to be an individual that has very low adrenal production of androgen and relatively high ovarian production of androgen, you're just going to be more likely to have uh, symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. That's interesting. And that's one of the reasons why some women go through menopause and never have an issue versus some women go through menopause and have just terrible issues. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and I, is there any way to, to figure that out before it happens? Yeah. <laughs> How so, would someone do that? If you have a very, very low DHEA sulfate um, pre-menopause, like let's say you're just an overt adrenopause, which is usually defined as a deficient DHEA sulfate, then you know you're quite likely to have um, more menopausal symptoms. So those are the women that you would likely utilize um, hormone replacement for? More likely. More likely. Especially, yeah. They're more likely to be symptomatic. You're more likely to utilize hormone replacement. Now, um, the USPTF did just issue their, I believe they called it their final statement. Oh, really? On, I have to check that out. Hormone replacement. Okay. They, didn't, they didn't really change anything, but they basically just said... Um, their recommendation is for women with no symptoms of menopause, which is usually just defined as um, genitourinary syndrome of menopause or vasomotor symptoms of menopause. They used to be called like vaginal atrophy and um, hot flashes, sleep disturbances. But those are the two categories that we put that into now. But for women without those symptoms, they recommend against, so grade D recommendation against the use of HRT. But um, one of the nurse practitioners I work with, um, she said, like, you know, find me a, a female that truly has no symptoms of menopause. Right. Yeah, so I'm, su like I'm a, surprised to hear that. It's a bit of a non sequitur recommendation, mm -hmm. but I understand what they were going at. Um, they were trying to emphasize the risks of HRT as well and the absence of symptoms. And some people do have very few symptoms. And there's, of course, natural ways to do that other than bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. What are some of the risks with hormone replacement therapy that why that they would say, um, and highlight the risks of hormone replacement therapy? Two of the main risks for bioidentical hormone replacement therapy in women 
is if you're on an oral estrogen or an estrogen in general, like we talked about earlier, the increase in platelets, um, usually increase in SHBG concurrently with that. Oral estrogen undergoes something called first pass metabolism in the liver, binds to the estradiol alpha receptor in the liver. You have an increased risk of venous thromboembolism, actually from a, a couple different mechanisms of action, but that's one of the well-known ones. So you want to make sure that you don't have a uh, coagulopathy. I have a very low threshold for testing for things like factor V laden. It Do has, you typically always test before someone goes on hormone replacement? Usually so. Hmm. And there have been cases where... Both men and women. Uh, more often women, especially if they're on an oral estrogen, especially so. Even if, if it's a synthetic estrogen. Okay, what if they weren't on an oral estrogen? Then it depends. I almost always recommend it. I believe it's only like $25 or $30 to get cash priced. Um, that like we could talk about labs for a long time, but cash priced wholesale labs mm. are almost always cheaper, even after your insurance, okay. like copay or insurance has kicked in, especially for genetic tests like that. Mm. For example, through LabCorp, um, if you weren't doing the wholesale price or whatnot, a factor five laden could be thousands of dollars. Wow. Whereas if you utilize another um, mm. lab, often just, you know, 30 bucks. That's amazing. That's amazing. So um, you test for factor five prior, oftentimes, especially if someone is on oral contraceptive versus um, a different kind of hormone bioidentical. Or just oral estradiol. Okay. It used to be that um, men were on oral like hepatically absorbed. Now we have lymphatically absorbed testosterone as well, which is interesting. It's, it's brand new. Have you been but using it? You're talking about the oral testosterone pill? I have a few patients on it. Really? And yeah, they're, they're lymphatically willing to, absorbed. They're, they're doing well on it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. There's, uh, that's a whole new topic yeah. and there's downsides yeah. and upsides and it can be a little higher to get, it's a little harder to get really optimal high levels if an individual needs that. Yeah. But it does seem pretty well tolerated. I think it is very promising for the future. The main downside is that it has to be dosed almost so often that it's difficult to adhere to. Right, right. So it's probably optimal to dose that three or four times a day. Usually we do it twice a day. Yeah. But um, anyway, men used to be on hepatically absorbed testosterone, uh, basically deep all. Right, And I, right. I think famously, John F. Kennedy was actually on this really? as well. And along with his Addison's disease, that was probably a lot of the reason for um, the flushing. Oh, wow. Um, okay. See, we're learning something. <laughs> anyway, not <laughs> I to, had no idea. Yeah. Okay. I, again, not to get off like too much on that tangent, which is, uh, we'll have extremely you back to talk, to talk about, about that tangent. Cause yep. I'm very yeah. interested in that. So the health history yes. of JFK is, <laughs> is awesome. Um, but, um, anyway, that also goes through first pass and led to higher blood clot risks and also hepatic pathologies mm-hmm. as well. What about the difference between, people ask a lot, the difference between bioidentical hormones and, what would you say, identical hormones, <laughs> yeah. synthetic hormones? What are, what are your thoughts, uh, pros, cons? Where is all the controversy coming from? I like to, to think about the specific mechanism of action. So if you think about, um, you know, when I see a medication, whether it's an oral contraceptive, whether it's est- ethanol estradiol, levonorgestrel, or ethanol estradiol, norgestimate, or just drospirinone alone, like regardless of the medication or molecule, it is going to have a pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic. And that's the, the pharmacodynamic. Um, think of the D in dynamic as the drug's effect on the body. Pharmacokinetic, that's the body's effect or metabolism of the drug. And supplements obviously have that too. So that's just pharmacology in a nutshell. 30-second um, crash Very, course. Well done, well done. <laughs> 
synthetic molecules are going to have many more mechanisms or different mechanisms than the bioidentical alternative. So if you're thinking about just, um, let's start with uh, ethanol estradiol versus estradiol. Ethanol estradiol is 100 times stronger binding the estradiol alpha receptor in the liver than bioidentical estradiol. So for that reason, it is uh, often not a good option unless the benefit of contraception is there. Because the benefit of contraception, like everyone kind of knows this, right. is like one of the strongest benefits. It's like a huge rock on the balance scale mm -hmm. of benefit. Yes, yes. Um, choosing when or when not um, to conceive. But anyway, another example is um, the synthetic progestin, progestogens, which are known as progestins. Um, drospirinone is one of them. Levonorgestrel is one of them. Um, they all have different effects that progesterone does not. So there is some evidence that progesterone helps balance out the sensitivity of estrogen receptors, whereas most synthetic progestins can hypersensitize estrogen receptors. So outside of the effect of progesterone binding to the progesterone receptor, it can skew the action of estrogen, for example, let's say in breast tissue, and affect risk there. However, a lot of these progestins also bind receptors like the aldosterone receptor or the androgen receptor. For example, levonorgestrel is a stronger androgen, so it binds the androgen receptor stronger than many of the other synthetic progestins, which is why you see higher lean body mass retention. And that's why it's known as like the athlete's mm. oral contraceptive because it's more androgenic compared to its other progestin alternatives. To bring that to androgens, if you're thinking about a synthetic androgen like oxandrolone, it's going to um, interact with the glucocorticoid receptor like what cortisol or prednisone binds to. And it's also going to interact, um, a lot of synthetic androgens interact with um, progesterone receptors as well. They also interact with aromatase, some even with estrogen receptors. So the way I think about it is synthetic HRT or oral contraceptives are actually far more complicated mm. um, and they are more complicated than bioidentical HRT. So they are harder to dial in and it's also harder to account for side effects that you might never know is happening because it doesn't present with a symptom. Very important to think about for your patients, you typically recommend bioidentical for that reason? Absolutely. What would be a clinical, just out of curiosity, what would be a clinical indication for, say, oxandrolone? There are technically a couple. Um, often it was used in burn patients that happen to be anemic. Um, it has a relatively, the stronger the androgen, usually the stronger effect of erythropoietin you get. It also helps maintain lean body mass well, including in women. And it is much less likely to virilize, which is um, basically the masculinization of right. a female. Right. That does not mean that it doesn't do that. <laughs> it cer certainly can and does, but it's just less likely to. Um, most people use it for its effect on SHBG, but a relatively good case is some, like let's say someone has uh, a touch of POTS, but they also are iron deficient and their hemoglobin is just always at like 11. Um, maybe they're already on a bit of uh, like DHEA or testosterone, right. both of which are androgens, and they just need a bit of a stronger androgen. Let's say they also need a contraceptive benefit. They're also on drospirinone, which is one of my uh, more favorite contraceptives because there's no estrogen in it. And they are also estrogen dominant. 
Maybe they also have endometriosis or a breast cancer risk, of which any strong androgen should decrease the risk of a breast cancer developing. So all of those, uh, there's probably more than half a dozen uh, potential benefits. If they have all of them, then they're a better case because that on the balance scale, it's weighed down toward the benefit rather than the risk. Totally. Um, Do you get a lot of questions on um, nandrolone? Quite a few questions. Um, a lot of people ask about, especially in the powerlifting community, strongman community, bodybuilding community, um, and also uh, sometimes veterans ask about nandrolone for, sure. for joint pain for or sure. musculoskeletal pain. For sure. So there's some some interesting effects. Nandrolone can uh, it can be progestogenic, and it can actually have a pretty similar effect to estradiol in that it pushes water into the joints. It is not as strong of a um, collagen synthesis molecule. Estrogen is actually great at type 3 collagen synthesis, but not type 1 collagen synthesis and not elastin. Uh, And then, of course, you need vitamin C to cross-link your collagen. So you really have to think about, um, and they have supplements for this even, when when you have a huge burn or, again, like a huge surgery, a lot of surgeons will prescribe Juvin or other similar wound healing supplements to ensure adequate building blocks and amino acids that like you talk about. Uh, <laughs> At nauseum, often. sorry yes. guys, so, yes. Um, but anyway, you're thinking about all those things. Nandrolone is basically a way to help you feel less pain and get you into where you can actually do physiotherapy. So it works very well, but if someone's on nandrolone, then that's gonna be suppressive, so. Um, it's like, well, do you start them on TRT at the same time? Often an alternative is just TRT and let estradiol run high because it gives you a very similar effect mm. of pushing fluid into joints. Occasionally you can use peptides on top of that to push fluid into joints. IGF-1 has a similar effect to that as well. Um, and pentosan polysulfate is a glycoprotein that can coat the joints and kind of give you a similar benefit where you're able to do physiotherapy with a physical therapist or a trainer and you're able to strengthen the area around and basically give your collagen enough time to heal with an adequate nutrient profile. So that's kind of a long way to say, not my go-to at all, and often there's better options, but it certainly works. Um, My main concern with it as far as side effects is it very strongly disrupts the renin-angiotensin system. Some people that utilize it just automatically prescribe an ACE or an ARB, which is blood pressure medicines, to kind of help this renin-angiotensin system. And then it is, seems to be one of the strongest effectors of left ventricular hypertrophy or the thickening of the heart. Um, a lot of people are familiar with different bodybuilder autopsies mm-hmm. where they've seen LVH. And um, so it's like, yes, if you utilize nandrolone, you really should be considering like CCTAs and echocardiograms and um, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Yeah. It's not a total no-go, but it is certainly a last resort. So that's that's also important. Um, and of course, one of the things that you're also saying is you you know we're not talking about pushing anything super physiologic. We're talking about uh, likely, I'm assuming, much lower doses than what would be used in say mm-hmm. a bodybuilding sphere. Yep. Right. We, we should also say regarding uh, nandrolone, also known as 19-nor testosterone, someone in the comments will put it's bioidentical. Uh-huh. It's only bioidentical in. Um, and there's like DECA burritos. That, that was nandrolone. <laughs> so when, okay, okay. I believe when How you're do you pregnant, know this? <laughs> when you're pregnant, your nandrolone is higher. It's like when you're yeah. pregnant, your nandrolone is four times higher mm-hmm. or something like that. 
but it's such a small insignificant amount that it's really only bioidentical because it's immediately converted to something else. So I consider it it's bioidentical in name only. I see. I see. And when a woman is going uh, through menopause, post-menopause, it sounds like um, you have a low threshold, assuming that she's symptomatic for treating with testosterone for women. Would that be uh, topical or injectable as well for women injectable? Usually so. Mm -hmm. And then what about oral or topical progesterone? Progesterone. Do you have a... Um, My preference for progesterone um, is oral. At night, it'll give you great sleep. Um, it also, when you take oral progesterone, it's, it goes through, again, that first pass effect that we talked about in the liver, and it is 5-alpha reduced, just like testosterone converts to DHT, uh, progesterone converts to DHP, and then subsequently to THP. DHP and THP can cross the blood-brain barrier. THP, or allopregnanolone, is what we give ladies with severe postpartum depression and psychosis. We give it to them IV. There's a medication under development where that's delivered lymphatically, which is very promising for both uh, like finasteride syndrome and also depression. Um, and it is a, that is a bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. It would just need absorbed lymphatically. And you can get a lot of that same benefit by just taking an oral progesterone, assuming you're not on a strong 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. Would you say, do you have a starting dose that you think, obviously you're looking at the labs, do you like to start at 100 milligrams, 200? Um, do you have a, a preference? Usually 100 or 200. Even um, like Prometrium brand name, you know, oral micronized progesterone, even that has a very wide variability in its bioavailability. So occasionally I'll actually co-administer with creatine in the evening, as long as it doesn't make someone get up at night to pee. <laughs> right. Um, but a little bit of creatine just to help upregulate that both absorption into the liver and 5-alpha reduction. But um, usually I start at 100 or 200. Anyway, the bioavailability can be super low, like 10%. It can also be much higher. So um, someone who takes 100 mg of micronized progesterone might be getting 50 migs into the body, but then someone who takes 600 migs might still be getting, might only be getting yes, 50. Yes. What about uh, how do you dose? What are your thoughts on the bioidentical estrogens? There's bias. Do you have a, a preference that you use that you've just seen over a period of time has been really beneficial for women? I don't have a strong preference. The main thing that I dose by, because estradiol is by far the strongest estrogen, which is also known as E2, is the content of estradiol. Estriol um, is quite high, also known as E3, is quite high in pregnancy. If you look at correlation studies, individuals that have higher estrone and lower estriol tend to have um, likely more breast cancer. That effect does not appear to be super strong. Likely uh, more hair loss and likely more prostate cancer. So I tend not to use utilize any estrone or E1. Mm -hmm. I'd, occasionally I will utilize estriol. Some people say it makes them feel kind of like they did when they were pregnant, like the second trimester, which oh, might gosh. be a bad thing yeah. or it might be a good thing. <laughs> Some people feel great through like late first, early second trimester, um, assuming no nausea. But yeah. um, a lot of people do have great hair through pregnancy. And there's actually some studies looking at like topical estriol um, mm. for hair as well. So um, the, the jury is not totally out regarding estrogens. My go-to is just a non-oral estradiol. Yes, same, same. 
I got a question here that I think is a great one. How long can a woman stay on hormones after menopause? There's no set cutoff. You don't have to stop after 15 years. A lot of people are able to, but there is definitely no, yeah. Do you find that, you know, it's really interesting. Um, So the data would support that you don't have to gain weight during menopause, right? So like the data supports that. And and my mentor, Don Lehman, really looked at this when everything is calorie controlled and you're controlling for activity. But I swear to you um, that some women, and again, whether it's FSH or something happens where some women just absolutely gain weight and then some women don't. Have you thought about that at all? Like why, even though uh, hormones are not directly, you know, obviously you're trained in obesity medicine, that would not be a treatment of choice. You don't put someone on hormones to have them lose weight. Mm -hmm. So uh, just. There's a lag. um, And a lot of things in medicine are like this. I don't know if you call it an insidious onset or (laughs) occult onset. There's a lot of words. Right. But basically it's hidden because it takes so long. There's a lag time. And the lower your free androgens, like your total androgen load, in general, you're going to tend to have a uh, sarcopenic tendency, less lean body mass, lower NEAT, uh, lower metabolism in general, lower basal metabolic rate, less lean metabolically active muscle tissue. And then you're going to have that lag of weight gain. So some people it happens earlier, some people it happens later, and some people it happens almost uh, not at all, especially with good and- like postmenopausal androgen production. Um, theoretically, with PCOS, if it is like an adrenally driven NCCH type of PCOS, which again that's just like the high androgens from the adrenals, then perhaps those individuals would take much longer to have a- some of those negative metabolic effects of menopause. Mm. What about natural ways? So if someone doesn't want to go on hormone replacement therapy, are there supplements that you feel work well for um, women transitioning into menopause? There definitely is. One of the most popular ones, of course, is evening primrose oil, Mm -hmm. which is essentially an estrogen. And um, what you need to take into account with that is the same side effects of any other estrogen, which we've already talked about. Yep. Some people also like taking ashwagandha, which has more mechanisms of action than just cortisol. There's actually four different types. Um, Sensoril is in general the most uh, serotonergic and probably should be taken in the evening the most. But uh, getting something like a Dutch test or even just a a morning and evening cortisol would be uh, fairly helpful for that. Cortisol can decrease um, androgen production essentially. And it also binds to the glucocorticoid receptor, which can lead to less lean body mass. So think of it as kind of a, a tug of rope with androgens, which you want to have a balance of. And it's naturally going to be more balanced toward uh, hypercortisolism if there's still high cortisol production after menopause. Mm. So that's another thing to consider. Um, uh, and then there's also a lot of over-the-counter products that are over-the-counter um, yep. hormones as well. Yep. Those are also a consideration. Usually they're just lower dosed HRT. So um, I still think those should have a risk-benefit discussion with the doctor. And usually instead of using those, I'm a fan of just starting a really, really low dose of HRT. Yeah, that is a great idea. In terms of, I'd love to, is there anything else that you wanted to add in terms of uh, hormone replacement therapy for women? Otherwise, I really want to shift the conversation to obesity, which I feel very passionate about. And I know that you do, too, especially in the media. Uh, There's a lot of discussion on uh, semaglutide, Mongerno. These are GLP-1, well, 
semaglutide is a GLP-1 agonist, and it's made very popularized now um, because apparently the Kardashians are taking it or something like that. As it relates to obesity medications, so we'll talk about the obesity medications and then the potential for natural supplementation or natural ways to lose weight and uh, be jacked and tan and all that stuff. What are your go-tos for obesity medications? I have many go-tos, but I'd say my main go-to is addressing whatever vector is the main problem in that particular patient. So I am for sure um, not one of these physicians. And I, I think that very few board-certified obesity medicine physicians would enter this category and hopefully not too many doctors, but there's certainly clinics like this that put everybody on a GLP-1. Um, GLP-1s um, have many different mechanisms of action. Semaglutide is the most famous one. There's many others. There's different combos as well. And there'll be a whole bunch and they are great medications. And um, we can definitely dive more into that. But um, some people don't have any insulin resistance and they don't have a lot of issues with satiety. Perhaps there is more of a binge eating or sleep eating syndrome mm -hmm. or night eating syndrome. There is a different vector that needs addressed. Perhaps it's mental health. Perhaps it's their lean body mass and hormone profile. Right? So in those cases, right? they just literally might not need them. And the thousand foot view or the clinical pearl is, yes, we're putting everybody on GLP-1s. There's really no plan to get people off GLP-1s. We do have relatively long-term data, most from liraglutide mm -hmm. or Victoza slash Saxenda, yep. yep. which has been around a while, but um, it can be relatively difficult to get off if the root cause hasn't been addressed. So if no lifestyle like changes have been made or whatnot, when you come off, you're probably going to return to the previous state. Mm. There is a bit of a beta cell preservation. So this is kind of like the silver lining for people that just yeah. go on and come off. There was a study where people were on for two years, which I think is a very long time, probably more than long enough for someone who's addressed the lifestyle or whatever pathology was at play or both, hopefully. After two years, it does help preserve more beta cell function. So less beta cells have died. Again, beta to define yep. stuff. Very helpful should. for everybody, yes. Your pancreas has a couple different endocrine cells, alpha cells, which produce glucagon mm -hmm. and GLP-1. You do make GLP-1 in other areas, endogenous GLP-1. Right. Um, semaglutide just has a couple amino acids changed. Right. And then your beta cells produce insulin and amylin. There's many different amylin analogs that are very promising. I guess they're peptides, aren't they? Yep, yep. Um, we got to still talk about that. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, as your beta cells die, that's when you develop like type 1 diabetes right. or insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. So you want to preserve those cells almost at all cost. And even after stopping your GLP-1, you had a legacy effect of better beta, beta cell function. I think that there is, I hear what you're saying about, uh, we're putting a lot of people on the, this, um, these semaglutide or GLP-1 agonists. And I think that they're probably eventually going to be looked at in some way like how metformin is used at perhaps maybe even a lower dose for longevity or the potential for anti-cancer benefits. I think, you know, um, I cannot believe how well these GLP-1 agonists work for individuals that can't seem to regulate their hunger and have insulin resistance. You know, I, I really think um, lifestyle is so important, but sometimes people have been living in this obesogenic environment for so long that they need something. Uh, you know, even if we want to do it naturally, it seems like it doesn't move the needle. I, I think that semaglutide and some of these GLP-1s are 
amazing. I do have the same concern that you have in terms of long-term use and the decrease in, you know, I don't know if they've looked at metabolic rate um, and potentially with a decrease in food intake, your body will adjust. And with a very low calorie intake, and then perhaps um, if you come off of semaglutide, you're probably going to have to reverse diet back up a little bit. Um, and then I, of course, have concerns about maintaining lean muscle mass. Yeah. Uh, just because appetite seems to be really, really low. Mm-hmm. Even on semaglutide, often you can have a refeed day where you have a slightly higher caloric intake. You do have to be careful with like the bulk of foods. A lot of clinics now work with an interdisciplinary team with like a dietitian or great. nutritionist, yep. which is wonderful. And GLP-1s, like not to confuse anyone, is like my favorite medication. Yeah. I, I use I, them very, very often. Yes. They're borderline miracle drugs. I know. But the issue with that is the issue with all other medications is people get put on them with no plan to get them off. Um, it's the same issue with a lot of uh, mental health medications as well. I do have a top three insidious, yes. unknown side effects. So you already mentioned one of them, of course. Um, the lean body mass, you lose about one third of your weight in lean body mass. And that is going to be the primary driver of a metabolic damage or broken metabolism after coming off or that rebound weight gain. The second one is the rebound weight gain itself. That's extremely difficult to deal with. So the most important time when like you require definitely physician oversight For is sure. the first couple months on a GLP-1 as you titrate off and after you come off. Yeah. And that's most, a, yeah, good point. Most people require something to transition them, hmm. whether it's a medication or a supplement. Interesting. Or, what would you use? It depends on the situation, but I'm not opposed to using a stimulant or something to give them energy. Occasionally, I'll use diethylpropion. Occasionally, I'll use fentramine mm-hmm. at low doses. Occasionally, I use bupropion or even nal- uh, low-dose naltrexone. Um, there's one called Contrave that has mm-hmm. both of those in it. Um, and as far as supplements, sometimes I use Raulcine as well. So there's like a... That, that's the great thing about now is... And in five or ten years, we'll have even more. We have a quiver full of arrows of <laughs> obesity, yes. Yes. of pharmacology supplements and medications. And there's a whole bunch of options, um, but uh, it's important to keep in mind risk factors like if they have a history of kidney stones, perhaps not using topiramate or whatnot. Right. Um, if they don't have that and all they drink is carbonated beverages, perhaps do use topiramate, especially if they have a seizure disorder, it's so on and so forth. Um, that's the individualized part about it. But those are kind of my go-tos for coming off. The third insidious side effect of semaglutide would be biliary pathology, whether it's cholestasis, whether it is biliary sludge, whether it's cholelithiasis or cholecystitis. Um, the hepatobiliary system is essentially paralyzed by high doses of GLP-1s. So it's important, and there's many ways to get around this. Some people just drink Senate at night, which is a little bit of a prokinetic. Um, some people, the LDN actually helps mm-hmm. because it is an antagonist of that mu or Greek letter U opioid receptor in the gut. Um, some people that have really high uric acid and bile acid while they're on a GLP-1 utilize something like an ursodiol to help um, stimulate, again, uh, the breakup and the um, movement of that biliary sludge. So um, it's it's kind of like you're, you're asking for trouble when you're paralyzing the biliary system. <laughs> right. All this sludge is building up in the gallbladder. A lot of these individuals are, you know, in their 40s and have high estradiol. Um, 
So you're just so you got to be really, really careful. Uh, you know, what you're saying is important because personalized medicine is for the the person that's really paying attention. It's, it is the way of the future because we are all so different. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of benefit from algorithmic medicine, but it just allows for a framework. And then that's where, you know, a personalized clinic approach is really valuable as opposed to, okay, you're going to this clinic, everybody's getting a shot of 200 milligrams of testosterone, and you're getting an aromatase inhibitor, and off you go. That's that's probably not ideal, even though a, a, many people, I think, believe that, that that's what they need. It's oftentimes not necessarily what they need. Um, what about, people ask a lot about uh, cortisol and visceral fat, um, if there is any suggestions that you have on that. But that was one of the questions somebody wanted to know about. What do you do? Mm -hmm. um, well, first, you want to make sure that you don't have Cushing syndrome. So we mentioned previously that JFK had Addison syndrome, very low cortisol or deficiency. Cushing syndrome is an excess of cortisol. Cortisol is just like most other sterile hormones where there is a binding globulin specifically for cortisol. So you actually have a free cortisol and you can check that binding globulin. Um, one very common case of an increase in that binding globulin is um, after the use of anabolic steroids. Many different anabolic steroids will increase this cortisol binding globulin and also prolactin at the same time. So an elevated prolactin and an elevated cortisol, the free cortisol might actually be normal, but the total cortisol might look elevated. However, if they have symptoms, then they probably are having excess glucocorticoid receptor activation. And uh, during this, often I like to get a cortisol test. Cortisol is kind of the opposite of melatonin. So it spikes up in the early morning, kind of gives you enough of a kick in the butt to wake up. Get out of bed. And then, yeah. so it can be good too, but obviously you don't want too high all the time. Cortisol is made adrenally. Um, ACTH actually stimulates both cortisol and DHEA production, interestingly enough. So if you're overproducing cortisol, it can also be due to too much insulin production or too much IGF-1. Mm. So often you can treat insulin resistance and with less insulin binding to the insulin receptor and IGF-1, then your cortisol will decrease. Amazing. Um, what about, you know, um, I do want to touch on uh, the last thing and then I'll, I'll let you go enjoy New York City is Peptides. A lot of talk about peptides. I love your opinion. If you're using them, what your thoughts are, how they're best utilized. So I, I know you know by now, I just look at peptides as uh, strings of amino acids. They're not a category of medication, but I do like to categorize them. So, Which is very helpful yeah. for everybody. Um, yes. Peptides are usually between two and a couple hundred amino acids. So they're just small proteins. Um, they're not sterile-based, so they're not based on cholesterol, like cortisol or testosterone or estrogen, but rather they're just an amino acid. My favorite one is insulin because it's life-saving for type 1 diabetics. Um, amylin is another peptide that I think is going to get a whole bunch of... There's um, a couple different amylin analogs um, that are either um, currently FDA-approved or in the process. And those are going to be huge. So those are kind of like one class. GLP-1s, I'd actually put in that class. So I suppose semaglutide is go. in that class yeah. as well. Then you have your growth hormone releasing peptides. Those are like your tesamorelin, your um, ipamorelin. Basically, you have two subclasses of that. 
peptides that are very similar to growth hormone releasing hormone, and then peptides that are very similar to ghrelin because they bind the ghrelin receptor, which we didn't even know was the ghrelin receptor until we found these peptides. That's actually how we found ghrelin's receptor. Um, and then um, you also have your growth promoting peptides different than your GHRPs. These are like your thymus and beta-4. Um, it's now chopped up known as TB500 or your GHK copper peptide, usually produced by the liver. The thymus and beta-4 usually produced by the thymus, an organ that usually just kids have unless you have myasthenia gravis. Then you have your angiogenic peptide and perhaps everybody's <laughs> love-hate favorite one, the I guess. The Wolverine peptide. Yeah, yeah. Your, your BPC-157, so body protective compound 157, also known as gastric protective compound 157. And that is essentially an angiogenic peptide that causes more vasculogenesis, more blood flow, which is extremely good if you have an area of collagen with poor blood flow. But there is also a medication known as Avastin, which is on the WHO's list of essential medications because it treats so many different cancers. And that does the opposite thing of BPC-157. It's a VEGF inhibitor. So there's definitely a balance to all things. And you don't want to just take these peptides because they're just like um, any other medication that is prescribed off-label or is not FDA approved for that indication. A lot of peptides are approved for various indications. And usually more than 50% of medications that physicians prescribe are not for their on-label indication. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think of peptides that are prescribed as just any other medication. And there's a risk and a benefit. And just like supplements, um, they have a pharmacodynamic and a pharmacokinetic effect, which should be taken into account and understood. Hmm. And are there, do you utilize any of them? Do you feel like, I mean, obviously we've spoken about many that you do use. Are there particular uh, off-label ones that you think have been shown to be very beneficial for people? Does it depend on the individual? Who's a responder versus a non-responder? Things like TB500, BPC157. Mm -hmm. what, are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I like to stay within physiologic ranges. Yeah. So if you're thinking about a GHRP, if you have an IGF-1 of 70, then... Um, you're a much better candidate of, for GHRP. Of course, again, like everything else, we probably don't even have to say it by now. You have a free IGF-1, <laughs> you have different IGF binding peptides as well. But if you have a lower IGF-1 and growth hormone, then a growth hormone releasing peptide is gonna have more benefit, especially if you just take it up to the middle of the normal range. Um, so that's one good case. Um, I mentioned that BPC-157 is one of my favorites. I've used it personally for a tendon rupture. Did it work? And it worked extremely well. Really? I'm, I'm sure that's what that Russian gymnast uh, used. So what did you use 300, um, did you use 300 micrograms twice a, twice a day or how did you use it? I used 500 two to three times a week until I was improved. Okay. It did not take me six weeks. Wow, so, really? Correct. That's incredible. Even with a tendon rupture, and it did not take me six weeks. Mm. I think I used it for um, barely three weeks, wow. and then I stopped. Were you like, this is insane? I can't believe that this worked. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was ridiculous. <laughs> See, but maybe you are really yep. Wolverine. We don't yeah. know. And obviously, that's an N of one, but um, I have seen it in many other cases as well. And the way I think about it is it's really an alternative to PRP, because what is PRP or platelet-rich plasma? Mm -hmm. It has a whole bunch of VEGF in it, which is essentially BPC-157, and it has a whole bunch of growth factors, which is essentially TB500 and GHK copper peptide. So um, it, it is a bit of an alternative, and perhaps that is why 
Many peptides are FDA approved for a whole bunch of indications, but those are not because there is a good alternative and PRP can work in many cases as well. Hmm. Um, Dr. Gillette, you are an amazing guest. I know that you will come back on at least a handful of more times. We could have probably gone on for another uh, two hours easily, but I, I really promise to let you enjoy New York City. Where can people find you? My main hub is on Instagram, Kyle Gillette MD. And then I'm under Gillette Health for all other platforms. And you also have a podcast, which I think is phenomenal with your, you have a nurse practitioner, you have other team members, yes. and you do take patients. So you see patients, you have a concierge service, and you have a um, regular clinic and a, and a whole team to support you. We'll link everything. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition. They may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.